Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. Welcome to another amazing, remarkable, uh, I don't know how to describe this Big episode. Deal. Big, Big deal. deal. Thank you. Thank you. Big deal episode of FNO InsureTech with your host, oh. Rob Beller. And your host, Lee Boyd. The other guy. Also known as the other guy. That's okay. Dude, you have a title. It's the smart one. Yeah, I, I thank you for giving me that. And uh, yeah. you're the good looking one is what I've been well, told. I, I prefer cute, but. Cute. Sorry. You're the cute uh-huh. one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the difference is, is that if you're smart, it's because you made yourself that way. If you're cute, it's just, you know, it's genes. a God thing. That's right. It's just, it's just it's good God luck. Given cuteness. That Good luck. And if anybody wants to see the definition of luck, look it up. And there's my picture in the dictionary. Because <laughs> I'm incredibly Urban dictionary, lucky. right? Uh, let's hope not. <laughs> I can't imagine where my picture would be in that. But moving Man, right if... along, we have with us today, uh, like we were saying. Um, a legend. A legend. A, a, yeah. a legend. And if you're if you're very far outside of the insurance business, you might not know of this legend. Like if you're a tech founder, you might not know of Julie Rockman. If you're a VC, you might not know of Julie Rockman. But if you've worked in our industry at a high level, at an executive level, um, either on the insurance side or on the service provider side, you've heard of Julie Rockman, you've seen her speak, Mm -hmm. you've heard of the work that she's done and the organization that she led for a long time. And ladies and gentlemen, because we love you, we have her on the podcast with us today. Yeah, we are so honored to have her. Julie comes on. Uh, she was a CEO of IBHS, and this is a organization that does all this amazing testing on on different building materials and different different items that really uh, influence the way that policies are sold, uh, claims are done. Uh, she is a very influential person in the insurance space, and and she has since retired from that. And we're going to get to hear about her time. Uh, there at the organization. And then we're going to get to hear about what she's been doing since since she retired. It's going to be a great conversation. It, it It's going to be a great conversation. And this is a woman who's even in, re, in retirement is sought after by many different parts and pieces of the industry still today. Big and names. it would behoove anybody, any of our listeners to be able to hear what she has to say, her thoughts and her insights into the business. So without further ado, we will get to our interview with Julie Rockman, former CEO of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, and now just all around wise and smart person in the insurance industry. Hey everybody, we are here with honestly a super special guest. Sometimes we say we have a special guest but we really have a special guest because this is somebody that we coerced, 
kicking and screaming out of retirement, a retired CEO, a retired big, big name in the insurance industry, especially in, in, in the property area. And we have Julie Rockman with us today, coming to us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, one of my favorite places, and here to talk about her experiences, her life, and her contributions to the insurance space. So let me start by saying, welcome. It's honestly a privilege for you to be with us today. Welcome. To Thank you. That was an incredibly generous introduction. I will try oh, yeah. to, I'll try to oh, yeah. some of it. <laughs> We're very excited I'm, to have you all. That's because that's when it's over, I'm hoping that there's some like IBHS swag that you can send me. Oh, I do have a tumbler that I'm drinking out of that has the. It's got it all on there. Yeah, I'd be I'd be good with that. I'd be good with that. He'll take anything. So welcome. So you're coming to us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Is this a recent place that you live or how'd you end up there? When I retired, we sort of, you know, tried to figure out what does your next chapter look like? And so uh, we did what we usually do in my house, which is have a glass of wine and take a road atlas out and start looking at places where you might like to live. And we just ended up through all sorts of screens and gates and filters here in Albuquerque. And we love it. Albuquerque. Albuquerque. First off, you had an atlas. That's pretty nice. (laughs) I'm old school. My brother is about to move to Las Cruces. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in in New Mexico. It's a happening place. The land of enchantment. And it's enchanting. It's very enchanting. So contrary to what this podcast is sounding like right now, we're not having you on because you're a resident of New Mexico. Which does sound fun. or, Or to promote New Mexico. You're on with us today because of your background in the insurance industry and the unique place and position that you are in and how the, all that kind of wraps into InsureTech today. So let's take a couple steps back to the uh, early to mid 2000s and tell us the beginning stories of IBHS. So let's start by identifying what IBHS is. IBHS is the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. It used to be, many years ago, the National Committee on Property Insurance, and then it had another name, and then it became IBHS under my predecessor, a very wonderful guy named Harvey Ryland. And then actually, I added the word insurance. It used to be just Institute for Business and Home Safety, but every time we would go out with a report or some data, people would say, aha, it's the insurance industry. And we'd say, yes, it is. Who cares? So we just put the name insurance at the front. Uh, some people like to call it IIBHS. I just said that I got thicker and taller and more muscular. <laughs> Capital I. Yes. How did you end up there? In the top job, right? Yeah, the short version is that I had worked at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, uh, ran their communications and was on their board. And then I went to the American Insurance Association. And while I was there, the industry decided they wanted to take an IIHS, Applied Science Approach, to property. The same way the industry had been very successful in driving down losses on the vehicle side. And I think that what happened was a bunch of people looked around and said, who is stupid enough to want to raise a ton of money and build this lab? And they kind of landed on me. So I I was drafted. I really didn't want 
to move to Florida to run the organization. But I, I will say that some of my mentors in the industry, including Brian O'Neill at IHS and Bob Bagley at AI and all sorts of people just kept calling and saying, just talk to them, just talk to them. And I talked to them and it was such a wonderful opportunity to wreck more things in the name of science and really build something that was going to have an impact, a lasting impact. It was really just impossible to say no. Yeah. So just share with us for a minute why the IBHS is important and and who is on its membership roles so that our audience can understand why the organization really matters. Okay. Well, let me take a, a brief step back and say that if anybody knows underwriters laboratories in our industry, you should know that underwriters literally means underwriters. That was like the original, the OG in SureTech, right? I mean, UL was designed to test and to advise and to, you know, make things safer for electronics. And then they've expanded over the years. And and IBHS kind of lines up next to Underwriters Labs and FM Global and other incredible science organizations that, that our industry has supported. It's important because we're the only industry that looks at science and risk reduction in a way that benefits our customers, right? If our customers win, they're not hurt, their properties and damage are destroyed, the industry wins as well. It's a twofer, same as on the auto side. And the insurance industry really had fallen kind of away from our traditional partners in safety when it comes to property like the fire services. We just weren't as close as we used to be with them. Uh, We really weren't participating in building codes or building standards like we should be. And what what IBHS has done through the construction of the lab that we built and all of our field work and our data is that we've gotten the insurance industry seats at very important tables that are making determinations about the future and the present of both residential and commercial property. And our voice should be loud and proud. We just didn't have the data or the standing to be at those tables, and now we do. Name some of the members of that organization. I would say among the top 20 insurers in the country by by net written premium, there are probably 17 of them there. It's easier to name the exceptions, but I, I will say that the companies that really stepped up and helped IBHS when we were transforming the organization from something that had been a little sleepy into something that was a lot more muscular and active, that was State Farm, it was Nationwide, it was Farmers, it was USAA, it was Renaissance Re. I shouldn't mention we have both primary and reinsurers as members as well as prescribers. There, there, it really is a, a broad swath of the industry. When you walk into the lab, we actually have a wall in which we put the logos of the 60 or so companies in the industry who financed the $40 million cost of the lab. And it's really impressive. It's nice to see a cross-section of farm bureaus and mutuals and large Eastern stock companies and 100% commercial carriers, 100% residential carriers. I mean, you see Zurich and USA on the same wall, you know you've got something going. Absolutely. Because it... I'm sure that it wasn't a real tough sell to some of these people, or or was it a hard sell to get so many companies and prominent companies involved? I think the the emotional and intellectual pieces of the the pitch were not difficult. Everybody was like, yeah, we need to do this. This is the right thing, and it's the right place and the right people. The challenge was that we started fundraising in January 2009. And the economy was, you know, we were right. entering a great recession. And so to, to try to find $40 million 
in industry pockets at that moment was not really great, which is why I like to call out farmers and, and state farm because farmers said, we'll put the first you know, big chunk of money in and then we'll want to see other companies match it. And I can remember going to industry meetings all over the country with members of my executive committee, including General Bill Cooney, who had been the head of USAA. And he's, you know, he's a three-star general, so nobody messes with General Cooney. But everywhere I would turn around and I'd look and there's, you know, Rod Matthews from State Farm with somebody up against the wall. And there's Bill Cooney with somebody up against the wall, you know, and Kevin Kelso from Farm. All these people, they were so helpful and so passionate that even when I would walk into a room and people would stiff arm me and say, I know you want money from me. I, I just can't right now. I'd have my guys, you know, and, and we would just keep working these people. It took us, took us um, a year. We issued some bonds, which we knew we would pay off. In fact, I think that IBHS will pay off those bonds this year, but we got $40 million and we built the lab on time and on budget. Okay. So let's take a minute and talk about, we, we keep talking about this lab or you keep talking, yeah. mentioning it. And let's start, I mean, clearly one of the most important contributions to the industry that happened while you were there and that you led was the construction of this lab that you're talking about. So let our audience understand what the heck it is and what the heck it does, because it's to say it's extraordinary is kind of an understatement. Well, thank you. I, I, I feel the same. It is extraordinary. It is um, the only place in the world where you can exercise a full-scale structure, residential or commercial, up to two stories, in what I like to call mother nature in a box. Picture a, a structure that's 70 feet tall, 145 by 140 feet. So it's huge. It's just huge. And one wall is a group of fans that are each about my height, like five foot five in diameter. They're electric fans. And with those 105 fans, we could make a hurricane. We could add water into the wind. We could add uh, flying embers, like a wildfire ember storm. We could create wow. coal that we fired from cannons. Um, so we, and we had a turntable so we could turn storms off and on and test in a scientifically rigorous way again and again the same conditions. So you can take different roof assemblies or different windows or walls or whatever materials and systems you want to test. And it's a fair fight because you may take a real-life storm record from Ida or Michael or Harvey or whoever, whatever the named storm is, and we would just digitize that. And we could run those exact same parameters again and again. So it has introduced a new type of building science to the world. And uh, it's residential and commercial. Um, it is in the middle of nowhere. I know a lot of people from the industry come to the lab and think they've taken a wrong turn. But we needed 100 acres. There's a roof farm on the property where we've got different roof assemblies aging and collecting data on those. Because one of the big questions for our industry remains is the age of a roof dispositive at a certain point? Is it five years? Is it nine years? And does environment make any difference? Is a roof aging five years in Minnesota, the same as a roof aging for five years in Mississippi? We don't really know. So there's a lot of long tail science going on in the area of aging. And then the other lines of science are wind, straight line winds, as well as winds that shift. And then yeah. water, and water, add fire, and add hail. So those are the, the big lines of inquiry. That is, that is so amazing. So now what are you doing with that data? Is that going back to help underwriters or is it going back to help claims? 
Where, where is that data most useful? Yes and yes. So okay. claims, uh, loss control, uh, the FIUs, uh, marketing, uh, agents. I mean, really for the whole industry, it, it breaks down in different ways. The data at a top line is released publicly because we felt the lab was really a public health and safety tool. The deep dive data goes to risk modelers who sit around the table and goes to underwriters and claims people and actuaries, anybody, anybody in the industry who wants it, if they're an IBHS member, has a- access to pretty much everything they do. That is fascinating. So have there been findings that were that were not expected? Have there been things, maybe windows that we thought were strong that, that aren't strong? Are there things like that that have been found? There are all sorts of surprising things that have been found. And, and a lot of those things, as we've discovered an answer to a question that nobody even knew needed to be asked. Yeah. Out the door too. I give you a very simple piece of guidance that we learned for consumers, which is incredibly important. And that is during a windstorm, close all your interior doors. Okay. That was never really a part of guidance when people were being told to evacuate or to shelter in the face of either a hurricane, if you're evacuating or sheltering or a tornado when you're sheltering because you're not going to evacuate. Um, but just closing the interior doors, if an exterior window breaks, can greatly minimize the chances that that damage will travel outside that room. Oh, that's so smart. I always I always remember growing up that closed doors, we would see the the fire demonstration that if a door was closed, you could limit the, the, the damage that the fire would do. And I, I never really thought about it being the wind and coming in doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's interesting because uh, some of the best wind engineers and structural engineers on the planet. And it's always a joy, I think, for any scientist to be in a room with other scientists and look around and realize, hey, nobody knew that. We just learned something, you know, like yeah. breakthrough. That's, that's an incredible moment when that happens. Right. So we have a friend who says the person that owns the data wins. And you guys were creating a whole new data set, right? through through this laboratory and i really encourage everybody to go on to ibhs.org for the organization that we're talking about and it has video and all kinds of cool stuff and it's the whole story of of the laboratory you're putting all this data together the ibhs now owns an amazing data set like lee said who are you sharing it with is it just for members or i mean i'm sure there's all kinds of people coming to you saying hey um would you be nice and lend us your data? <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. It is, it is primarily, the, you know, the deep dive data is primarily for the benefit of the funders of the uh, organization. So the members, it is a membership organization. And in, in any membership organization, there has to be some benefit to actually paying dues, right? right. So you can't just give away the farm. But the top line stuff and the summaries and the outward facing sort of more consumer oriented or public policy oriented findings go out the door. Because the whole idea is to touch everybody who has the ability, every stakeholder in a building, anybody who has the ability to impact building, design, rebuilding, repair, replacement, all of it. So do you have roofing companies or roofing manufacturers who are members of this organization? I would think that roofers would be the most interesting relationship that the IBHS has. It's a great relationship. They're not members. They have their own trade association, the National Roofing Contractors Association and others. 
but we did, when I was there, establish a good rapport with the roofers because we know that that's the number one line of defense on any property, right? 90% plus of property claims have a, a roof aspect to them because that's where the damage starts and that's where it spreads. Um, so we started, uh, maybe the second year the lab was there, we started having a dinner annually where our executive committee from IBHS and the National Roofing Contractors Association executive committee would have dinner. And it was really interesting because we'd sit across the table and we'd have the same complaints about how the process worked from the time a roof was damaged until it was repaired. Um, they're very interested. They've been adversarial in some parts of our conversations, as you would expect. But I think in general, understand that we all have the same end customer, and that's the homeowner or the business owner who's building mm-hmm. the roof on and who's building we're insuring. So at the end of the day, mm-hmm. we want a lot of the same things. But weren't it weren't in some ways they may be concerned that this multi-billion dollar industry was going to be the that the revenue would be negatively affected if roofing science got better? Yeah, that's a good question. They'll sell fewer shingle squares or they'll, you know, replace. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what we got them to understand is they also had a public relations problem that we could help address. People don't really want somebody climbing up on their roof and telling them they need it to be replaced when it doesn't. Um, Mm -hmm. People don't like all of the shingles that come off when they really have no business coming off and very low wind speeds, much lower than they are certified to or warranted to. And all that ends up in a bill. So we talked to them about, you know, here's what you guys can do to help us reduce waste. Here's what you could do to help us, you know, improve the quality, the perception of quality among your customers. And some roofers, the same way some automakers, you know, were on board first with IIHS. There are some roofers who were, I think, at the table just to monitor and kind of watch and play defense. And there were other roofers who were there and realized that there might be a really good niche for them in the market if they could create a more hail-resistant product. And if IBHS would test it, for example, and then say, hey, this product is actually, you know, pretty resilient, that that would be good for business. So, you know, they're differently situated, but I think in general, they understand that um, they really didn't have a choice. As I said to them, the first industry, roofing industry meeting I went to, I said, look, the industry is, our industry is doing this. You can either get on board or get out of the way, but we're going to do mm-hmm. this without you. We'd rather do it with you. Mm-hmm. And so you guys have this unique facility, right? Do people bring you stuff and say, hey, can you put this in a 120 mile an hour wind so we can see what happens? Yes. I mean, is it just building stuff? Or I bet you get some other stuff too, right? People are like, you have this amazing facility. Can I, I want to see how, at what speed I get pushed over. Yeah. <laughs> or like baseball helmets or whatever. Yeah. A lot of the weather uh, people. Yeah. You know, from Weather Channel stuff, they want to come and stand on their turntable and let us blow them away. And we had a couple, I won't mention their names. We just said, wear a billowy shirt and we'll, you know, turn the wind speed way down. And, and it was, it was just kind of funny, but yeah, we, we had a couple of, uh, advertisement. Like there was some people who were advertising a car who wanted us to show the car sitting there while the house behind it blows away. I was like, that's like completely antithetical to everything we stand for. So that was a hard no. And then we had, um, like a failover backup system for, you know, large computing systems, trying not to describe it in such a way as people who would know what it was. But anyway, they, they came, it was a big tech company. They came and we built a flood tank for them. And uh, so they could show how their, their technology fails over very, very quickly, like instantaneously. We thought maybe the movie industry would come do some special effects there, but I don't think they wanted 
any of their people to be an actual one. They mostly green screen stuff. Right. Right. And occasionally we get, right. you know, some inventor who's invented. I don't understand why the insurance industry doesn't give discounts for my invention. It's the greatest thing since life spread. It will prevent fill in the blank damages. Can you test it? And then I'll sell it. And we would say no. Will the IBHS certify something like, will they put their seal of approval on a product? That's a huge question, actually. The the question of certifying versus designating versus endorsing versus promote. I mean, that, that's right. That's right. Language. Right. So um, we didn't want to become a commercial certification lab. Very different kinds of staffing, very different kind of operating plan. When we developed a superior test method for impact resistance of shingles, we actually worked with underwriters laboratory for them to do the testing. So they had a standard test, which was not nearly as good as ours. Theirs used steel balls, and it doesn't cover, as far as I know, rain, steel, uh-huh. ball, sky. Right. We did authentic ice that looks and acts and feels like hail. We spent several years talking to them, and then they do the certification test because they already have that uh, standing in the market. And I think the, one of the things that IBHS is very good at is filling in blanks. We don't want to be redundant. We don't want to compete. We want to look for where knowledge doesn't exist. And then we want to attain that knowledge and then activate it. So as far as you know, have you ever had an insure tech company come to you guys and say, hey, you know, this is a technology that we're developing or a process or an app that we're developing. Can you guys help us? Yes. Can you tell us about that? No. You don't have to name names. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you one example that's sort of more... It's less about an app. It was during my time there um, when drones were first being used by the industry. Uh, we had 100 acres with lots of buildings and trees. And, and so we actually went and got permission from the FAA at the time to have people fly on our property. So carriers who couldn't find a place to fly because restrictions were so tight when drones first came out. Right, right. Practice. Uh, and use the drones on our campus. And we actually had a, a, a coalition of insurance companies specifically about the use of drones. Um, and there are still some companies that do drone-related work there. Um, as far as apps are concerned, we did contribute to a few. We still contribute to a few apps. The one that comes to mind most immediately for me is I do some wildfire mitigation work here in New Mexico and um, the, the county is creating our, our community wildfire uh, protection plan. And there's a new app. Uh, it's a wildfire app for consumers um, that IBHS has worked on with some other folks. And so a lot of that information goes sort of across the whole wildfire chain. Anybody who's, who's in that space has access to IBHS data. That is that is really neat. I, I'm I'm just sitting here thinking there's got to be a market for IoT devices, uh, you know, for these water mitigation tools or these, you know, even if there's a fire that maybe it's a fire suppressant. There's got to be a market that people are going to be looking for more and more places to to test those things. So I, I would imagine the door is going to keep on getting knocked there. You know, I think there are a lot of people who would like us to test things at IBM. Yeah. The challenge is, can we do it in a way that is consistent? Is there enough yeah. of those things to create a comparison if you want to have a you know relative evaluation of something? Is it so unique that it would be a game changer? That's that's what they have to decide. And the people who decide who has access to the lab are the members. 
So if, if a member brings, you know, my brother-in-law invented something or somebody called me from X company, they can bring it to the table and they can say, is this worthy of us either delaying something else that we want to do or slotting it in? Um, and occasionally they will do that. So is the organization able to actually quantify the difference that it's making in the insurance industry? Are you able to point to certain things that have been tested or processes and say, we, we learned this and now we're better off because of, of our testing? Yes. Um, specifically with shingle manufacturers, when we would do tests, they would pull products from the market that performed poorly or they oh, would wow. hurry up and introduce products that they knew we were going to test that would perform better. Um, uh, some of our research has landed in building codes. Um, oh. Quick example, the, you know, a roof, if it's like a residential roof is usually built in layers. I think of it like a sandwich and the middle layer is usually the thing that keeps water from getting in. So not the deck, but right. sort of cover over the deck because if it's OSB or plywood, there's little spacers so that it can, as it heats and cools, it can contract and expand. Um, the layer that people would put on top of the deck and under the shingles used to be called a secondary water barrier. And that sounds like, well, you've got something else helping you. It's secondary. It's not important. So we sat around one day and came up with the term sealed roof deck instead. Okay. Technology, but the words were important. So the sealed roof deck, long story compressed, found its way into building codes in Florida and elsewhere. Um, and what's neat is anytime somebody says sealed roof deck, we can trace that back to us because we made it up. So we That's know. That's cool. <laughs> I like that. So I, I have to ask one question. And for the people listening, you have to go look at um, the videos of this place and it running. How much was the electric bill? Come on. <laughs> Let's talk about the electric bill. Oh, the electric bill. So you can only run the lab at full speed in off-peak hours because we don't want to brown out, you know, the, the Carolinas. Um, the, the bill is large because we had to pay about a half million dollars just to have the privilege of pulling the power. So it was like a base. Oh, wow. First you pay us a half million dollars and then you can run your fans and spend more money. The, there's a separate building that houses the electrical um, equipment, the drives, uh, variable frequency drives. And that building, this number will always stick in my head, has a cooling system in it that cost a million too. Wow. So power is definitely the, the largest part of the cost structure. The fans, the things that drive the fans, everything about it. It's not cheap. Well, I'm thinking with, with 100 acres out there, you could bring in some of the solar power, right? Some of these panels and do all of the uh, research on what weather does to solar panels. That's a whole nother, a whole nother thing that's out there now. That is true. And we had done some work on solar panels. We were looking at how they were mounted to residential and commercial roofs because there's often sure. Or if they're not, if there's no roof penetration, they're simply ballasted and then they slide around. And I will tell you real quickly, one very funny story that I, at least I think it's funny. The first time we did some, they shifted because the wind would move them like an inch. And then we'd test again. It would and it kept moving. And we went back to the, the solar industry and we said, Hey, do you guys know that your panels move around on the roof and they could like tear the roof cover? And they're like, yeah, there's a cord. I mean, they, there's, it's okay if they shift a little, like, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point here. It's not that that they won't work if they move. It's that they're causing damage if they move. They didn't care. They just wasn't didn't care. Didn't care. Like, nah, it'll still work. So I'm a member of the I Want to Be Julie Rockman When I Grow Up Club. 
there's many, many, many members around the country. I'm sure many people listening, I've seen you speak many, many times. And by the way, you, you always did a great job and I really appreciated your generosity in that regard. But um, let's talk a little bit about you. And I, I want to start kind of at the beginning and go backwards. Um, although I don't necessarily hear, need to hear about your kin- the kindergarten story again. Just hearing that once was enough. So today you're retired, but you're pretty busy. Yes. Yeah. I'm, as my friends and family say, I'm not very good at retirement. I don't think I'm alone in that regard. There's just, you know, when you, you work in an industry like ours, there's so many opportunities to do good in the world and to help people. And I love that. And so I'm, I'm on the board of several industry organizations Some are paid, some are unpaid, but I just, I didn't feel like 30 something years was worth walking away from. And I, I, I love the boards that I serve on, the people I serve with, the things that we're working on. And it, it keeps me engaged. I'm only 60. I mean, I just turned 60. So oh. I feel like I've still got several years of, of productivity in me. Yeah. So you went early. You took the early retirement option. I retired at 56. Uh-huh. I don't think I would have retired then other than, you know, there was a guy who ran IBHS ahead of me and he retired. And I had a very strong vision backed by my members. But what we were going to do, we did that. We executed on that vision. We did basically everything they hired me to do. And then about, mm-hmm. you know, 11 years in, I looked around and I thought, I can see the next hill that we need to take. I just don't know that I'm the right person to lead the charge. So I went to the board and said, I think it's time. It's been 11 years. We probably need somebody else with a different lens than I have. Wow. That's cool. very good for you. Forward thinking that. Yeah. But, but I do totally get that. I mean, and like in insurance today, for example, you're on Eagle view mm-hmm. and, and anybody who's anybody in our industry, whether you're an insure tech or not knows Eagle view, they're very early entrant to the insure tech world. What value do you bring to a board like Eagle Views? Well, Eagle View is owned by private equity firms. And so their board largely comprises people who come from private equity. I am the only, well, actually now, uh, Rishi Daga, who was the CEO, who is now retired off of that board. Uh, I'm sorry, as the CEO, is, is another external director. And But prior to that, I was the only external director who comes from the insurance industry. And, and Rishi doesn't really come from the insurance industry. He's learned it. He's, he's very fluent. But right. what bring is that perspective of the customer and you know, deep knowledge about certain things, broad knowledge about others. Mm-hmm. Is that what attracts people who ask you to be on their boards? Is that insurance, strong insurance background? Yeah, uh, with, without exception. I think mm-hmm. the fact that I was a CEO helps because, and I'm a huge believer that women need to serve on boards. And when I announced I was retiring, people would say, what do you want to do? I would say very clearly, I want to be on boards. Because women's voices need to be heard. And I think that the insurance industry's voice needs to be heard. And having that perspective of working in property casualty for, you know, forever. I worked on comp issues and I worked on property and auto and Superfund and asbestos and terrorism. You know, so so I really do have, I think, a, a, a fairly good 360 degree view of the industry. Well, you know, I think it's so important because so so much private equity is out there. And, and the boards are, you know, a lot of times filled with private equity members and things like that. They need that voice. They need the voice that's been around, you know, something like yours, it's 
not just been around, but actually tested products and, and knows these, these people and these certain roles at insurance companies. It's so, so important. So I could imagine that there's many boards uh, who are knocking on your door. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to say no. Actually, I'm, I'm probably going to come off of at least one of the boards this year because there's some other stuff I'd like to do. <laughs> well, don't go too quickly because um, Lee and I didn't want to tell you, but we're going to ask you to be on the FNO InsureTech board. That's right. Unpaid, of course. No, in fact, you have to pay us. But, you have to pay um, us to be on it. We were going to do that on the air, but but I think that everybody should know in full transparency that... Yeah, we don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but... No, no, you can think about it, but as long as we have an answer by the end of the episode, that'll be fine. But seriously, so how is that different or is it any different from from like the you're, you're on Plymouth Rocks board and Plymouth Rock is an insurer. I mean, they're a, they're a home insurer. Uh, I don't know what what other lines they have, but how do you help them? Same kind of way? No, because Bill Martin, who's the CEO of the home assurance company, which is Bunker Hill and uh, kind of rolls up. Bill is one of the smartest guys I ever met in the industry. He was on my board uh, at IBHS when I knew him from farmers. I knew him from bankers. He's just, I have so much respect for him. I think that's sort of a different kind of a seat for me because they're so fluent in insurance, but I understand things that impact their business in different ways. So whether it's weather, supply chain, different kinds of vendors, it's, it's sort of like I have one foot in their world and one foot not in their world. And so I bring a different perspective. Their other exterior board member, external board member there is a guy who is a meteorologist at MIT. So I think oh, wow. Carrie Manuel, who's huge in you know the weather world. And I think so the two of us kind of form a little weather coalition on the board. Now, working backwards a little bit, you're at, you're at IBHS. Long run there, undisputably successful run. Congratulations on that. How did you get there? What were you What were you doing? You, you mentioned a little bit before, but I mean, what was your spot in the industry? It wasn't as this maven of, uh, you know, building materials, was it? No, no. I was a communications person, really. I mean, I had been, I wasn't a lobbyist, but I worked with the industry's lobbyists on national, state, issues. Uh, I ran the communications function for the coalition that got TRIA done, Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. Probably the most important thing I ever did in my career was helping to get TRIA passed because that was 14 months of just banging on people's doors and saying the economy was going to collapse. And I think it would have. Um, so I, w- I had been at the American Insurance Association running their communications function and I was on the management team. And there were a lot of loss control people coming in and out of our offices for meetings. And so I would go sit and listen because I just love loss control, loss mitigation stuff, always have. And then I left AIA to go to a consulting firm in D.C. called the Glover Park Group. And I was very happy doing just kind of consulting work and taking on clients. And then literally uh, the IBHS job came up and people kept saying, talk to them, just talk to them. And I said no. And the last straw was after all my former bosses had called me and said, please talk to them. And I had no idea why they were talking to me. I was at a restaurant with a client and ran into a person from Chubb, a person from USAA and a person from AIA. And they all looked at me in front of my client and said, why aren't you talking to IBHS? And I was like, okay, if the unit went home and I said to my spouse, if the universe is talking about me, I probably should talk to them. So yeah. Long, long process gets shorter. I go to Chicago for the final round of interviews. I'm told that I'm one of three. I said, that's fine. I want to go last. They said, okay. 
I show up and they say, you're the only one we're interviewing. The other two dropped out when they heard that we were talking to you. Wow. Which makes me badass, I got to admit. Yeah. But I don't think they probably went, you want us to raise how much money? You want us to do what? And they were sane enough to walk away. And I was the only one who said, well, I really don't want the job. I've got nothing to lose. Why don't I tell them exactly what I think about this project? And I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good story right there. It's great to uh, ha- to be able to be in that position of say, I have nothing to lose here. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And to lay it all out on the line. The older I get, the more I do that. Well, I will Except say at home, of course. I said, yeah, well, a whole, whole different dynamic. But I do think, <laughs> you know, people lose sight of the fact that our industry is endlessly creative. And there's so many things that we could pursue if we just took the time and energy and attention to focus on them. And this was a moment, you know, it was in the wake of hurricanes, Katrina, Rita, Wilma, all in all, you know, just kept coming and coming and the industry needed to do something. And it was kind of like either we do it now or the window closes and it never gets done. So let's just leap. Let's just do it. And I think that's what insurtechs in general, that's the approach they take, right? Is you find a gap, you find a need and you go, man, somebody needs to do this. Why not us? And then why not us moment is huge. Mm -hmm. Another thing that often happens in insurtech is they've developed a technology for something else. And somebody in the industry sees it and says, you know what? That'd be great here in the insurance industry. And so people pivot to it. So in the couple of minutes we have left, Let's talk about InsureTech directly. And you've been around, you have a lot of wisdom. Share your thoughts with, uh, we're on video with Julie and, and, and something just happened that was super disturbing. <laughs> that I'm going to I'm gonna say, she has her dog on her lap and it's incredibly cute. Um, I'm going to try to regain my composure here. Sorry. Center, center. So share with us uh, some wisdom that you have to share with InsureTech's people men and women who are coming in through that direction from the technology side into the, into the insurance space. Sure. So I am a huge believer that technology gives people options. It gives people flexibility. It can provide efficiency. It really isn't something that should be opposed. Now, having said that, I think the way insurance technology was introduced to our industry in general years and years ago, was that it was going to be a replacement for people. Yeah. And that really stuck because I think there's always been, not necessarily technology, but there's been data that replaces people. Every once in a while, you hear the carriers say, fire all the underwriters, we're just going to use credit, you know, or fire all the whatever, we're just going to use this. And I, and I don't think that we as an industry or the, the people who were trying to get us to listen to their ideas about technology and data did themselves any favor by offering huge leaps and bounds that meant getting rid of humans and then backing off and not being able to deliver on the stuff that wasn't going to replace the humans. I don't know if that makes sense, but like it does. there was a lot of threatening sort of aspects to the sales pitches and there was a lot of overselling that everything was going to be better and everything was going to be easy if you just do this. And that, It's rarely true. Rarely, rarely, rarely true. But I do think that... Uh, now that we've sort of moderated, modulated all those things, and we understand that technology is about enhancing the human's ability to do work and not replacing all the humans, and that everything in our industry is about risk and technology can smooth the edges off all sorts of business risk, uh, 
I, I do think we've embraced it as an industry. We're incubating. I mean, there are companies like American Family who have, you know, we're, oh, we're yeah. really leaning in and trying to say we need certain types of technology. And there've been some huge wins, no doubt. There are there are insure techs out there that have done amazing things, and they will beget others that will do amazing things. There's so much opportunity in our industry. Uh, I, I think we've really just scratched the surface on the types of things that we can do on the property and the auto side in particular. It's remarkable to both Lee and I, the amount of opportunity there's, I mean, because like, like what you did, and, and I think you said it early on, you guys had a problem that you wanted to solve, which is, which is frequently what we hear from technologists that we have on the podcast is they saw the problem or they understood a problem and they went to, to solve the problem. There's so many problems that the amount of opportunity is just it's just stunning. But I think you're right about that. Uh, InsureTech hasn't cleaned out the offices of the insurance industry. No. And I, and I think the other thing is, I, if I had one piece of advice for InsureTech people when they are pitching, it is don't assume you know everything just because you're in tech. Um, the insurance industry has been around for hundreds of years. It's a very specific type of function. It is very complicated. If it was easy, other people would be doing it. And other people have tried, like doctors. You know, when the MedMail crisis came up, a lot of doctors said, oh, let's do our own insurance companies. It's harder than it looks, boys and girls. It is It is not for the faint of heart. And I think when you get technology pitches where the people are young in particular, not unusual, but they come across like they know everything, then they hit the wall where there's some piece of the insurance transaction or workflow that they just didn't know about or didn't fully understand and they lose all credibility. So my one piece of advice is if you're going to go and pitch a carrier or a, you know, reinsure whoever it is you're looking at, at least take the time to crawl around on their website, to read their press, to, you know, to know who it is you're dealing with because the companies all have different personalities. Right. You know, State Farm is not the same as paying all state. Pitching a mutual is not the same as pitching a, a stock company pitching, um, you know, a carrier who's growing like gangbusters because that's what their investors want them to do is very different than an old who's really struggling with what does their exposure and their PML look like in a particular market. Mm -hmm. All of that mm -hmm. stuff is important. And the other thing is, of course, depending on the price, you're going to get stuck in some vendor nightmare where you, you can't get to those executives who you want to get to know and understand what their needs are. But I, I, I think having some empathy for the fact that these insurance companies are performing very complex tasks every day and they just want something that works. You promise them something that works and doesn't work, you'll be dead to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good words yeah. of wisdom. Or, yeah. With a product or a service either. Yep. Absolutely. Um, l listen, if somebody wants to contact you to be on their board other than us, <laughs> how would they reach you? They can find me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest. I, I'm not okay. like the bushes for more board seats. I, you know, <laughs> half a dozen is, is a pretty good, pretty yeah, good, pretty good number. Pretty good. Uh, pretty good group. Now that you accepted our invitation, you're, you're, you're busy. Forget it. Everybody. She's out. Yeah. We already got her. She said almost. Uh, you snooze, you lose. So listen, thank you so much. What a delight to have you with us. Uh, a real pleasure. We don't get to talk to New Mexico very often. So uh, this is awesome. And we hope that we'll have you back. And I hope that we'll see you out there on the conference circuit when it really is going again. Yeah. I'm sure you still get called to please come talk to us. 
I do. I'm actually going to be in Texas next week at a, a meeting for Solera, which is oh, great. another insure tech. I'm on their advisory board. But I really appreciate you guys reaching out. Um, you, you have a really entertaining podcast. I will say I have gone and listened to several episodes. And I'm oh, very well, thank you. among the people that you wanted to have on. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Lee. Appreciate it. Uh, Lee, you know, it. I don't know that a lot of people who listen to our podcast might appreciate this, but Julie's kind of a legend in our industry. And yeah. so it was a real honor and privilege to have her with us today. I would agree. I mean, her stories about all the things that, that she's been a part of, she is really out there whenever she was the CEO, right? I mean, she was changing the way that the insurance market looks at products and weather and now she's continuing to change the way uh, that that different companies are, are looking at insurance and how they're they're innovating. It, it it's just really a great time to get to visit with with Julie. Yeah, and you know, uh, just so everybody knows, offline, charming, wonderful person. I mean, as impressive as she was, her credentials, her background, a legitimate mover and shaker in our industry, and we thank her so much for being with us today. Very lucky to have her on. Thank you, Julie. And we thank all you for uh, you being movers and shakers. And with us, a couple of yo-yos who are the furthest thing from movers or shakers. And that you listen to us and that you're part of our podcast. Big thanks to Al Moya and Alicia Moss for their production work that they do because we wouldn't be jibber-jabbering without them. And a thanks to my co-host, the one and only Lee Boyd. And we'll let him take this home. Go ahead, Lee. Goodbye, everybody.